Hi, everybody. It feels so weird to be up in front of people without a mask on. It doesn't feel right. <laughs> I'm very uncomfortable. Um, so, um, I, you just, I don't know if you noticed, I just took off my Eagles mask. And of course, as usual, I um, did not start on my talk as soon as I wanted to. And I've been rushing to get it done the past couple days. And then all of a sudden, the Eagles decide to fire Doug Peterson. And I was convinced it was spiritual warfare. I'm a huge sports talk radio listener. And uh, I quick I sent a prayer request out to my sports prayer warriors, Anthony and Todd and Tim Gorby, and said, you got to pray for me. This is Satan. I need to stay off sports talk radio for the next 48 hours. So they were quick to pray for me, and I really appreciated it. And... Um, you know, Todd said that he knew it was Satan because if God had done it, he would have fired Howie Roseman too. And I agreed, but anyway, all right, sorry about that. So we'll get started. <laughs> so um, last week, Maureen taught about Jesus and the Pharisees discussing cleanliness. Ooh, what's that? Sorry. Okay, so the Pharisees had taken it far beyond clean and unclean foods. They had lumped whole groups of people into the category of unclean. God welcomed Gentiles into his temple. In the Old Testament, the law states that Gentiles were allowed to be in the outer court, and they were even allowed to offer sacrifices. But some of the groups of the Pharisees despised them so much that they made laws saying that the Jews couldn't go into a Gentile's home or even buy food from one of them, lest they themselves might become unclean. So these people that God had welcomed into his house, the Pharisees decided were not worthy to be part of their community. And they used preserving their good standing before God as the reason why. So Jesus rebukes the Pharisees and impresses upon them that it's nothing outwardly or anything that they put in their body that makes them unclean, but that the heart of a person, their innermost being, is what determines whether they are clean or unclean. After this, Jesus and his disciples leave Israel and go right into the heart of the Gentile territory. Jesus leaves the Holy Land and travels to Tyre, which is northwest of Galilee. It's a Gentile city that's rich in Canaanite paganism. According to Tim Keller, this is the only time recorded when Jesus left the boundaries of Israel during his public ministry. He and his apostles take a very circuitous route from Genesaret on the western coast of the Sea of Galilee. They travel northwest to Tyre about 30 miles, which is where the first miracle takes place. Then they travel even further north to Sidon, an additional 20 miles, before turning and heading southeast around the other side of the Sea of Galilee to the Decapolis, which is a confederation of free cities southeast of Galilee. And that's where our second miracle takes place. In total, Jesus and his apostles traveled somewhere around 140 miles, which is a lot of miles for a man on a mission who's running out of time. Most commentaries believe that there were two reasons why Jesus left Israel. First, Israel had become a very hostile place. Herod thought that he was John the Baptist raised from the dead. 
and the Pharisees were busy building a case against him. So maybe he thought it was a good time to lay low for a while. The second reason is that Jesus and the apostles had been trying to find some time to rest. Jesus was getting ready to leave them the keys to the kingdom, and I'm sure he had many things that he still wanted to talk to them about. But one teaching that I listened to suggested a third reason. Jesus went to Tyre because he had uh, had a divine appointment with a Syrophoenician woman. Let's read the first account of our the first miracle account from Mark 7:24 to 30. And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a gentile a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed, and the demon was gone. Mark 7.24 in the King James says, He entered into a house and would have no man know it, but he could not be hid. Now this is the same Jesus who just fed 5,000 and walked on water, yet he could not be hid. It's true that Jesus had become very popular And that word had spread quickly, even outside the Holy Land. But I don't think that it's the popularity that prevented him from being hidden. There are other places in the gospel where Jesus not only hides, but is hidden in plain sight. In John 8.59, it says, Then they took up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them, and so passed by. And from Luke 4, and they rose up and drove him out of town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, so that they could throw him off the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. He didn't just disappear in a poof of smoke, which he could have. He walked right through the crowds, and yet they didn't even see him. Surely, if he wanted to be hidden, he could be. Joe Foch of Calvary Chapel contends that it isn't that he can't physically hide. It's that he cannot hide himself from human pain and need. But he could not be hid for a certain woman whose young daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell at his feet. Do you know why they wanted to throw him off the cliff in Luke 4? Because he had just finished teaching in the synagogue Quoting Isaiah, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. This is Jesus's mission. Jesus crossed the border to get to this woman, just like he crosses borders to get to us. 
He's not afraid to enter into the depths of our sin to bring light to the dark places of our heart. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. So here we are in Tyre, and a Syrophoenician woman approaches Jesus. She is a Gentile, a Canaanite, presumably a worshiper of pagan gods, a natural enemy of the Jews. She is implicitly impure. Worse than that, she's a woman unaccompanied by a man, and she has a daughter with an unclean spirit who has even less standing in society than the mother would. And then she has the audacity to initiate a conversation with not just a Jewish man, but a Jewish rabbi. She would have been very aware of the Jewish customs. She had no cultural or religious or moral standing to approach a Jewish rabbi. The Pharisees would not even let a Jewish woman sit at the feet of a rabbi. This Gentile woman comes and falls at the feet of Jesus. It's interesting to note that the last person to fall at the feet of Jesus with a request was Jairus, also on behalf of his daughter. There could not be a more stark difference between the president of a Jewish synagogue and this lowly Gentile woman. Yet the Lord sees none. Jesus doesn't look at human status or position, but rather human need. The parallel story in Matthew 15 says the woman was crying and said, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. She calls him Lord, son of David. She sees him for who he truly is, the promised Savior. The Jews in Israel, they didn't get it. They had all the scripture to back it up. Jesus told them, I am the fulfillment of all these prophecies. Yet they didn't get it. More than that, they were actively trying to mount evidence to convict him of blasphemy. They had already made attempts on his life. In Luke 4, after he teaches from Isaiah, the crowd is stunned. Their response is, isn't this Joseph's son? Lowly Joseph? Joseph from Nazareth? Nothing good comes from Nazareth. If you're so powerful, then why don't you heal here? And Jesus responds, No prophet is accepted in his hometown. There were plenty of widows in Israel, but Elijah had to go to a widow in Sidon for the Lord's provision. And there were plenty of lepers in Israel, but only Naaman the Syrian had had faith to be healed through Elisha. And how many times in the Gospels does Jesus have to explain himself to the disciples? Even at the Last Supper, they still don't get it. He says to Philip, Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me? Yet here is this pagan woman, this Gentile woman, and she knows. She proceeded to beg the Lord to heal her daughter. Ted Tarson describes her begging this way. There are people who are go-getters and there are people who are overachievers. And there are parents who have sick kids. And they'll run circles around the greatest overachiever to do what they need to, to help their kids. Tim Keller calls it mom love. She will not stop asking, begging, or pleading. In Matthew, the disciples say, Lord, send her away, for she keeps crying after us. 
She was relentless. She knew that only Jesus was able to give her what she needed. Jesus' immediate response is to lay out the limits of his mission, his call to serve his own people. In Matthew's version of the story, Jesus begins by saying, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. This statement was directed at the disciples, not at the woman. He was about to do some teaching, and he wanted to make sure they were paying attention. He's giving his disciples a glimpse of what the larger mission he came for is, the redemption of all mankind, the mission that he will be sending them on once he leaves earth. Jesus responds to her, I should feed the children first, not the dogs. This sounds so harsh and dismissive. It sounds like he doesn't care. Honestly, it does not sound like the Jesus we all know and love. James Edwards says, the reference to the woman as a dog ranks among the most offensive sayings of Jesus. Jews did not keep dogs as household pets. There were packs of dirty, wild, unwanted dogs throughout Israel, and Jews were known to insult Gentiles by equating them with these scavengers. But here, Jesus is actually using the word for a little dog, a puppy a family pet, which Gentiles were familiar with. Jesus' intent is not to insult this woman. He is inviting her into a discussion by stating what she already knows. This woman is a mother. She understands what he's saying when he says, feed the children first, then the puppies. Jesus' earthly ministry is for Israel. He is here to reveal to God's people that he is the fulfillment of of every one of God's promises from the Old Testament. Alistair Begg said, Jesus rarely left Judea and Galilee. He never went to the seats of civilization, Rome, Athens, Alexandria. Not a great strategy if you're trying to reach the world. But the resurrection is the turning point in history. It is then that he tells his disciples, go to all the nations. There is an order, first Israel, than the nations. It would not be right in a house to have the kids sit down at the table and then take their food and give it to the puppies under the table. No one would argue with that. But this woman responds in faith. In a household, a father sits at the table and eats, and he gives pieces to his children. But there are even smaller pieces that fall to the floor that the dogs eat. Even the puppies get the scraps that the kids drop. She's saying, I know my place. I know I don't have a right to come before you. I know there's nothing good in me. My people do not worship your God. I don't have a place at your table. But what you have is more than enough. And I need what it is that you have to offer. This is such a countercultural response. We're always fighting for what we think we deserve or what we're owed or what we're entitled to. Who does he think he is saying he's better than me or that they're more deserving than I am? This woman is so humble. Not only is she humble, but she humbles herself before the Lord. She bows down to him. She does not try to defend herself. In fact, she says the total opposite. Give me what I don't deserve based on your goodness. 
Alistair Begg says, this is an illustration of what it means to come to Christ. She doesn't come to Jesus and argue her claims at being just as good as anyone else. She doesn't come to Jesus and debate the Jew versus Gentile story. She doesn't come and dispute the mysterious ways of God. She simply comes confident that Jesus, the son of David, is the only one to whom she may turn. And that is the only way that any of us may ever come to Jesus. Like this woman, we do not deserve to be at the table. Do we understand that? Do we live that way? Or do we go around saying, I deserve this, I should have that. Why is this happening to me? Jesus says the first shall be last. Whoever wants to be great must be a servant. For even the Son of Man, Jesus, came not to be served, but to be a servant. We must come with a humble spirit and a contrite heart. As we should expect with Jesus's countercultural upside-down kingdom, though she does not demand any respect, Jesus restores this woman's dignity and elevates her and her daughter to the place that God had intended them to be. In Matthew, Jesus exclaims, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. This is the only time in the Gospels that Jesus tells a woman, great is your faith. In Matthew, Jesus, I'm sorry, he gives her a seat at the table, although she is fully undeserving. Just as we are promised a seat at the table, though fully undeserving. God's mercy is greater than our unworthiness. Before we move on to the next miracle, Joe Foch pointed out something that may or may not be related, uh, but paints such a beautiful picture that I just wanted to share it with you. In Acts chapter 21, which is about 25 years after this miracle story, Paul lands at Tyre. And it says, And finding disciples, we stayed there seven days. When we had come to the end of our days, we departed and we went on our way. And they all accompanied, accompanied us with wives and children till we were out of the city. And we knelt down on the shore and prayed. Could it be that this woman and her daughter were among the believers there? Or that their story of Jesus' mercy had led to more Gentiles coming to faith? What is your story of faith? And who is God calling you to share it with? Next, Jesus heads to Decapolis. It's another predominantly Gentile area southeast of Galilee. This was where Jesus healed the demon-possessed man in Mark 5. So let's read verses 31 to 37. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ear and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, 
saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. So Jesus arrives in Decapolis, and immediately a group of people come and present someone to Jesus to be healed. Sinclair Ferguson says that this is one of the most beautiful, as well as being perhaps the most unusual of all miracles. This story is only told in the book of Mark. Presumably, it must have left an impression on Peter, who relayed the story to him. Imagine it. Jesus arrives in town, and a man who is deaf and has a speech impediment is rushed by a group of friends to meet him. The word Mark uses here for speech impediment is only used here in the New Testament, but it's the same word that is used in Isaiah 35. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. Mark is drawing his readers back to Isaiah. Remember how God promised he would come to save us, to heal us? This is him. Jesus is God's promise fulfilled. He is with us, and he is making everything right. Think of what this man's life must have been like. What it would be like even today not to be able to hear what's going on around you. Not to be able to communicate your thoughts or needs clearly. In many ways, he was probably cut off from the community, left out, lonely. But he does have some friends. And they are very excited, maybe even frantic, to get him to Jesus. Does this man even know where they're taking him or why? It says there's a crowd. I think if I were the man, I would be a little bit hesitant, maybe alarmed, probably scared, being rushed into the throngs of a crowd to meet a man who doesn't really look like anything special. But the friends beg Jesus to lay his hands on him, to heal him. Jesus takes the man aside, away from the crowd. He doesn't make a spectacle of him. Maybe he recognizes fear or confusion on the man's face. Jesus is beautifully compassionate and intimate with this man. He takes him aside so he can look in the man's face, so he can communicate with him in a way that he will understand. Jesus uses sign language. He enters into this man's world of silence. He touches this man that many would avoid. He places his fingers in the man's ear. Jesus spits, and then he touches the man's tongue showing him that he understands, that he knows what the man is dealing with, where his struggles lie. Then Jesus looks up to heaven, so the man will know it is God alone who is able to do all these things. And then he sighed. Jesus sighs. Some translations say he deeply sighed or groaned mightily. These two words have brought many tears during the preparation of this talk. How many times this past year have we sighed? All the losses due to COVID, losses of life, of jobs, of events, of milestones, loss of human interaction, racial injustice, politics, the hate that permeates our country. Mike, Jacob. 
how many times have we sighed? But these two words also offer so much comfort. Because Jesus sighs too. Jesus laments with us. Sinclair Ferguson says, This sigh is an expression of the deep sorrow that the Lord felt at the ravages of the fall in the lives of men. Tim Keller says, Jesus is deeply affected by this man's plight and by ours. Jesus is God with us, Emmanuel. He has tied himself to us so that until we are at rest, he will never be at rest. We have a God who understands us, who sighs with us, who weeps. Jesus looks up to heaven, he sighs, and he says, Ephatha. By the word of Jesus' mouth, this man is healed. The creator speaks not to the man, he can't hear, but to his creation and commands it, Ephatha, be open. Ephatha is an Aramaic word that even Mark has to translate for his readers. It's a difficult word to pronounce, and it requires distinct articulation of the lips. So that even someone who reads lips would easily be able to decipher what the word is. Maybe Jesus chose this particular word so that the deaf man would be able to understand, even though he was unable to hear. Again, we see Jesus' compassion and thoughtfulness towards this deaf man. And the man's ears were opened, and his tongue was released, and he was able to speak plainly. He was healed. He was fully restored to what he was created to be. There are metaphors in the Bible about deafness in relation to a life apart from God. Up until the point of coming to faith in Christ, we are all deaf, blind, and mute. Faith comes through hearing the word of God. And once our ears are open to the truth, we're able to speak truth and life to those around us. I wonder if this is why this story stuck with Peter. Did it remind him of his own story? How he was deaf to the Lord's warning of his betrayal. How no good word came from his mouth when he denied Christ. And yet how Christ beautifully and lovingly restored Peter after his resurrection to what he had intended him to be and charged him to go and teach and preach to all the nations. Well, unlike Jesus' command to Peter, this passage ends with Jesus telling the witnesses not to tell anyone what they had seen him do. But for the fourth time in the Gospel of Mark, they just can't help it. They're so utterly astonished, so over-the-top amazed, that they just can't help but tell. Mark Strauss says, the good news is so good that it overwhelms those who experience it, and it cannot be kept a secret. The people exclaim, he has done all things well, which makes us think of God in Genesis 131, when he looks around at all that he had made, and it was very good. Jesus had come to restore all of creation. His work of redemption is like the Father's work in creation. It is done well, and it leaves nothing to be desired. This last part of Mark chapter 7 
is really a tale of two stories. One is a battle of the wits, the other a tender love story. But that's the amazing thing about Jesus. He comes to us and meets us exactly where we are and gives us just what we need. The kingdom of God is for all people. Jesus literally went out of his way to show love and compassion and kindness to all. We are his image bearers, his disciples who have seen his good work. We are his witness to the world. The world looks at us and they see Jesus. What does our reflection look like? Do we look like people who embrace the outsider, the stranger, the enemy, the weak? Or do we look like people entitled to a seat at the table? Every one of us comes to the table as a beggar. Not one of us has a right to be there. And even though just the scraps would be enough for salvation, God gives us so much more. He sits us at the table, making us his children, fully restoring us. It is only God's grace and mercy that does that. We need to do a better job loving, speaking words of truth to each other and to those whose ears have not yet been opened. Pray with me. Lord, we are humbled that you would invite us to your table. Help us to never lose sight of your mercy and grace. Help us to desire you as much as the Syrophoenician woman did. Open our ears to hear your truth. Open our mouths to speak words of love and compassion. Compel us outward to bring your message of redemption to the nations. We love you, Lord. Because you first loved us, help us to love others. In Jesus' name, amen.